I think one of the things that frustrates people the most about the deer issue is we would all like to know what to do. What plant can I plant that they won't eat? Why are there so many deer? How tall does my fence have to be? We all want this nice, clear answer, and it's more complicated than that. Phil Seifert is a gardener at world-famous Cornell Plantations Botanical Gardens and Arboretum near Ithaca. He and his colleagues have their hands full. Young trees, some among the rarest specimens in the Plantation Museum, are threatened by white-tailed deer. It's a problem that has been growing statewide as the deer population has exploded over the past decade. The concentration of deer in and around the Cornell University campus is estimated at between 120 and 140 per square mile, making the highlands on the east shore of Cayuga Lake ground zero in the battle to control deer browsing in upstate New York. The problem is not unique to Ithaca. Suburban landscapes across the upstate region, including mature plants and shrubs, are being stripped of new growth at an alarming rate. And the damage is having both an environmental and an economic impact. Hello, I'm Mike Amy. Horticulture expert Jim Solesito and I travel to Ithaca to meet with Cornell Plantation staff for a first-hand view of damage to the collection and effects of deer browsing on ornamental plants, trees, and gardens in the surrounding neighborhoods of Cayuga Heights and Forest Home. The damage is immediately apparent and widespread throughout the area. The Cornell plantations comprise 135 cultivated acres in a preserve at the edge of the Cornell University campus, along with 4,000 natural acres nearby. Mary Hirschfeld, director of horticulture, says there was no deer problem within the plantations 15 years ago, but that has changed. Cornell developed an integrated deer management program, and it involves uh, capture and sterilization, tagging, monitoring, getting to know what the deer in each area of plantations primarily. The center um, research area is the core of campus and plantations in the Arboretum. That's where hunting is not permitted, and so they use the capture, sterilize, release to see if this would work. And after five years, they've determined that it, it doesn't work. What we're seeing is that you know, the only way your population will diminish is mortality, car accidents, old age. And we're seeing new deer that are not tagged migrating in from the outside as hunting pressure on the outside areas around plantations increases deer migrating in here. So now, instead of our numbers stabilizing or dropping, they're going up. Phil Seifert. Certain things like chemical deer repellents help, but they're not going to be a complete solution. Why should a deer be deterred by a smelly bar of soap? Why should a deer be afraid of my wob of hair? They're going to learn that these things are not a real threat. You can, you can, you can see the behavior. You can see that when a dog is in the neighborhood, you can tell that the deer aren't intimidated by it. I mean, what do you do when your dog starts to chase a deer? You yell at your dog. What do you do when a deer is standing in the middle of the road? You stop your car. I've seen does nursing their young in the middle of the road. Why? They know that these things are not true threats. Uh, deer repellents, things that smell bad or taste bad. Think back to your first cup of coffee. Think back to your first beer. You maybe didn't like it, but you acquired a taste. That's why it is important for things like deer repellents to change them around from time to time. If you keep using the exact same product time after time after time, they're going to get used to the fact that this is what this smells like, this is what this tastes like. 
There are very few plants that deer will not eat. Mary Hirschfeld. What I've seen happen is that it's really beginning to limit the palate of plants that we can grow. There are certain things that are fed on so heavily that I don't even try to put them in the collections. They just stay in the nurseries. And that's unfortunate. And um, they have expanded the range of what they will eat. And we haven't seen much of anything that they won't. You just mentioned there are some plants you won't put out there because the deer eat them. But they may be in residential landscape uh, situations. Could you name some of those? The ones that I have that are really seriously eaten are actually quite rare. They're Asian mayanthemums. Solomon seals, they love those. Most of the things that are damaged here the most severely are not plants that the average person would have in their garden. Things like hostas and daylilies that they are indeed very fond of that most people have in their landscape. We have been relatively successful using repellents to keep those, the daylilies blooming and the hosta foliage intact. The thing that we don't manage to do is get if they get the flowers before they bloom, so you have these little stubs sticking up above the foliage. But that's not the main reason to plant a hosta anyway. But a lot of those plants, we know they're going to hit them heavily, so they're really closely monitored by the team and the gardeners. And if the gardeners know something in particular is being hit and they're not cycled to come up for a spray for another five days, somebody will come over with a smaller container and apply a repellent to that particular plant. On a hillside near the new Nevin Welcome Center at the heart of the preserve, we find evidence that the damage is not just from browsing. Male deer, known as bucks, do severe damage to young trees and other plants by rubbing growing antlers to remove velvet. Phil Seifert took us to a tree on Conifer Slope just a few hundred yards east of the Welcome Center. So we've come out here to Gymnosperm Slope, Conifer Slope. It's uh, part of our conifer collection for the plantations. It is an absolutely beautiful location with a wonderful view looking down into the bowl of the rest of the botanical gardens. Uh, This is home to many of our fir, uh, juniper, and pine collections. What I'm seeing is last fall a buck came here and it rubbed against the tree, marking its territory, and it's caused the tree to become rather one-sided. The problem is, out in nature, it's not such a big deal, but in your home landscape, you may not want to have this tree present anymore. You've got caging around these trees. Does it work? It helps a lot. Uh, We've tried different materials over the years, plastic fence. Again, any decent garden center is going to sell a few different kinds of of plastic fence. Sometimes deer will get right through that. Sometimes uh, a buck will try to rub anyway, get their antlers snarled in that, and rip it right away. Heavy, heavy snows can pull it down anyway just because of the weight, and then the plant is, is not protected at all. We've tried metal fencing as well, which is more rigid, depending on what's behind that. Sometimes the deer push through that as well, too. And it's more costly and a little harder to manipulate, too. So the homeowner might have a harder time using that material. Should they have that material up at the time of year when the deer are doing that rubbing? That must not be happening all the time. Uh, Correct. Um, And and the fencing will do a few different things. Uh, I mean, we're specifically talking about buck rub right at this moment. Yeah, deer grow their antlers in the fall so that they've got them in fall during the rut, during the the reproducing time when, when the males are just surging with testosterone. Absolutely, you want to have that fence up prior to that. We'll start putting fencing up around around susceptible plants in September, for sure. Back at the Nevin Welcome Center, Mary Hirschfeld describes another threat that has been introduced by deer, Lyme disease. 
Lyme disease infects humans, often with debilitating effect. We have people come visit from southern states, and they can't believe it, that we're not calling deer. They said, I just can't believe you're letting this population get totally out of control. And until recently, we didn't really worry about Lyme disease, but now it is becoming an issue. You even have a vaccination for your dogs. One of my dogs actually contracted Lyme disease. The ticks are here, and Lyme disease is going to become more of a threat, and it's just a question of when people in this area decide that's more serious than keeping Bambi's around. What is Lyme disease, and what are some precautions people ought to take? <sighs> Lyme disease is complicated because it presents in a number of different ways. A typical thing is a red bullseye around a tick bite that doesn't always present. People just feel bad. We've gotten to the point in this area where if anybody is working in a brushy area or area with high grass, they check themselves for ticks after they leave the area. You know, the typical thing of tucking your pant legs in and, you know, not providing any openings for ticks to get in, but they will. And um, in areas of high grass, for example, one of our colleagues lives in uh, one of the Finger Lakes natural areas, and um, it's a high grass meadow. She'll go out for a walk with her two dogs, and when she comes back, she'll pick 40 to 42 ticks off herself and her dogs. And the first time she contracted Lyme disease, um, you can take an antibiotic for two days immediately after you think you come into contact with it, and that eliminates it. Um, her doctor didn't believe her. He said, no, we don't have it in this area. So the next time she went out, she took some tape, and she put all these deer ticks on the tape and then taped it to the envelope and showed the doctor. She said, this is what I'm exposed to every day. And more and more people are contracting Lyme disease. So this is in a meadow or high grass situation, and is it prevalent across the entire region of upstate New York, would you expect? And I know the Ithaca area, they're here. It is sort of environmentally dependent on where their populations are higher. So, for example, I live in a wooded area where I have a lot of open areas in a pine woods, and I don't really see many ticks, but I have contracted a few deer ticks. They're very easy to overlook. They're very small. Dog ticks are much easier to see. I think it's going to become more and more of a problem. Jim Mack, Horticultural and Grounds Operation Manager at Cornell Plantations, recommends a thorough inspection to remove ticks from clothing, arms, and legs following walks through tall grass and shrubby areas. You know, it really becomes a, a bit of personal preference. Uh, in other words, certainly doing a visible inspection of yourself and uh, your pets, if you happen to be out walking with them, uh, is part and parcel to living in this environment. I wouldn't do anything silly like walking, uh, you know, through tall grass with uh, shorts on, for example. I mean, there are certain things you need to premeditate. Working uh, as a staff in this environment, uh, in our horticultural collections and some finely clipped and mowed areas uh, where it's less of a prevailing uh, issue. Staff uh, pretty much uh, dress as they're comfortable, you know, with the environment. And um, I, too, wear shorts in the summer and uh, just more vigilant on, on doing an inspection at the end of the run. Phil Seifert. I take care of Comstock Knoll, which is the home of our rhododendron collection, and also a fairly large hillside that includes uh, much of our fur collection. One of uh, collection policies is to uh, have a very nice assortment of, uh, of fur trees. And that hillside is, is quite large. Uh, to the average person, probably looks like a wooded hillside of, of, of evergreen trees, of, of pine, firs, and spruce. So these are areas that deer will actually move into and 
and stay for the wintertime. These collections don't get a lot of visitation in the winter. I mean, you know, it's a garden. When do you go to the gardens? Spring through fall. But we certainly still exist. The other thing with woody plants is they are up year-round. So rhododendrons being an evergreen certainly are providing foliage. Buds are present year-round. And just the nature of those plants, they create shelter. Uh, Hillsides uh, create shelter. Large trees create shelter. So I know from just seeing it that the deer move into those gardens and stay there. Everyone is going to see some amount of browse as deer pass through your yard. Imagine how much more you're going to see when they're actually living in your yard, when they're actually giving birth in your yard. They're there. So you're not only seeing browse, you're seeing damage from them playing, pawing, digging up the earth. Significant damage is done by bucks. Uh, Mary and, and Jim both mentioned the sterilization program that we have here at Cornell. It's a great idea. I don't think it's working very well. And also, sterilized deer still eat. It doesn't matter if the does are sterile or not. Bucks are still having antlers. For Micha Stragopedi, also a gardener at Cornell Plantations, Lyme disease hit close to home. It just so happens that I come from Italy, and I was raised there till the age of about 24. I have a personal stake uh, in this fight, and my mama got infected with the Lyme disease. I don't want the deer in my gardens. I don't want the deer in my areas. I don't want the deer to disturb my activity and the visitors. I don't want the deer to chew up on my flowers, on my visitors' flowers. I just don't want them here, period. Micha Stragopedi oversees a superb collection of shrubs and other plants that require cages and other barriers to foraging deer. He's frustrated by the effect these enclosures have on the appearance of the botanical gardens. The main issue with the caging that you were mentioning before is uh, the caging of the shrubs. Um, The shrubs that I do want to uh, keep present in the gardens because they provide variety they provide a different dimension to uh, the presentation of collections. Um, all of the shrubs that are there need to be caged. Uh, I'm talking about hydrangeas, I'm talking about Japanese maples, you name it. They all present that kind of awful, cagey-looking contraption. It's just a pity and a, and a problem. I don't want metallic mesh cages to uh, disturb the the overall experience. I want the the visitors to come in and no matter whether they're plant geeks or whether they're, you know, they just want to contemplate and just space out in the gardens, I don't want them to focus on the cages. Hence, uh, we have a problem. We join Jim Mack and Phil Seifert outside the Nevin Welcome Center for a look at a number of ways the collection is being protected from deer browsing. Jim, I'd like some specific recommendations for a homeowner in terms of height and material that you use that's been successful here, including the type of stakes that you used here at the plantations. Sure thing. My observations, uh, not just working here at Cornell Plantations, but uh, in previous employee in Ohio uh, at the Holden Arboretum, is that some of the semantics of the height of the fence and what you put up where have to do with the deer themselves. I do know that uh, deer do not see in color. So if you're going to put out those little fluttery flags, bright orange, because you think somehow that will uh, 
instill the fear of God in them? No, they don't see in color. The other thing is is that deer have a very poor depth perception. And one of the tricks we get away with, putting up a fence around a, a larger specimen, you really don't need anything higher than a four-foot fence so long as the plant behind the fence is dense enough where they can't feel by vaulting it they can land safely. When we return, Jim Solicito revisits an academic building where he studied horticulture at Cornell as an undergraduate. Not much has changed, but deer browsing has altered the landscape, even here in the heart of the main campus. Welcome back to Invasion, Landscapes in Crisis. I'm Mike Amy. Horticulturalist Jim Celesito and I traveled to Cornell University to get a first-hand look at the effects of deer browsing on the Cornell Plantation's Botanical Garden and Arboretum, as well as surrounding residential neighborhoods. For Jim Celesito, it was also a return to the horticultural laboratory where he earned his degree in plant science. We're on the Cornell University campus with Dr. Nina Basic, who was a classmate of mine at Cornell back in the 70s and now heads the Department of Urban Horticulture. We're actually in the basement of the Plant Science Building where we took classes together, and Nina has made many observations over some 33 years here. And of particular note, I want to talk today about what she's seen happening with the deer population and the effect upon the plant materials and how she teaches now. Hi. Well, um, there are many differences between what we started with in 1980 then on right now in 2013. Um, I teach a class called Creating the Urban Eden, and one of the nice things about that class is a year-long class. We take a part of campus, and the students learn how to analyze the site, design it, supply plans for it, and we actually install the, the landscape every year. So we have 13 or 14 landscapes that the students have done over the years. And what we used to do is uh, we didn't really pay, pay much attention to the deer issue initially. In fact, we still had tulips in one of the main gardens here. There are no tulips anymore. But as the deer population grew, and they are all on campus, so we see them, we know them by name, practically, we started to pay attention to deer-resistant plants, plants that are not in the top tier of deer palatability. And there are lots of different levels of that. So uh, tulips and taxis are in the top tier. They really love those plants. And hosta. But uh, you can get down to others that they will not touch at all. So knowing about sort of four levels of deer palatability helps in uh, determining what plants will do well in those areas that are prone to deer. And so we really t- make attention to that, and the students have to do research on looking for those deer-resistant plants that will serve with their designs. You mentioned four different levels in here. How are those four levels differentiated? Well, um, I'm, I'm thinking now of actually there's a really good website that Rutgers puts out. Google uh, deer-resistant plants, Rutgers, you'll get to it, which determines there's four levels. And it's, it's pretty much observational. People have noted this over time. And I looked through the list, in fact, last night, just looking at it again, and I really think it's pretty good. Uh, so there's a level that's uh, A, B, C, D. A, deer won't touch it, or very, very rarely will touch the plants. And B, that's occasionally, 
C, they like them quite a bit more, and D, they really like these plants. You know, it's kind of a, a level of palatability or desire by the deer that has been noted by people over time, and it's pretty accurate at this point. So it's both uh, annuals and perennials and woody plants that have been rated that way. Have you noticed there's problems with deer rubbing on certain plants and not others? Is there a pattern? Well, the deer have, uh, of course, the males have antlers they grow every year, and uh, in, say, August, September, the they have to rub off the felt or the velvet, velvet, velvet right, that on the antlers. And, and they, so they go for small trees that can, they can get their antlers in between the branches and the, on the bark. It's not going to go on big trees because they can't really rub very well. And so they're going to get them in the crooks of, the, of those small trees. So they go for the small trees, and that's where they can really get uh, a lot of purchase in rubbing that velvet off. So it's going to be trees that have a smooth bark that's uh, they're branched up to what we might consider a normal tree height if you have lots of little branches down below that they won't go for those so they'll go for the trees that have a nice straight trunk that are small and caliper that they can get the antlers in between and get some good rubbing according to the quality deer management association there's actually two times that bucks will rub their velvet the one their antlers rather they rub the velvet in late august early september to get it off and nobody ever sees the velvet because after they rub it off they eat it then there's no rubbing that goes on and this would take place generally on the bushy shrubby type plants and then there's going to be during the rut, which would happen generally after the second week after the harvest moon, the latter part of October into November, then it's generally a sexual type of a situation, frustrational, where the younger bucks will tend to just go out and beat the heck out of anything. Now, I have seen and I've told people that lilacs won't be eaten by deer, but I've certainly seen lilacs get beaten up. And I know that you, Nina, live out in the wilderness, so to speak, the hills of Ithaca. Can you tell us about lilacs being chewed on out there as opposed to being rubbed? Well, lilacs, I mean, sometimes you can say that there's a group of plants that are pretty resistant to deer, but lilacs, it really varies by species, by type of lilac. There is one lilac called... uh, Miss Kim lilac, uh, Asian lilac, which is totally, as far as I can see, resistant to any deer brows or rubbing. There are other lilacs like late lilac, a syringa veloso, late lilac, that is exceptionally <laughs> tantalizing to deer, and it will be eaten down to the ground. And one right next to the other, in fact, a Miss Kim next to a late lilac, one will be eaten to the ground, the other one won't be touched. Uh, I haven't seen particularly rubbing on lilacs, but I have seen, you know, eating of the branches. So that's so it varies between the lilacs. And then there's some in the middle, but the late lilac is, is really delicious for those deer. You mentioned that you're seeing quite a few deer on camp. Is there anything good that you can see from having deer around? Uh, is there anything good? I, I mean, people get startled when they see deer right next to them, and they, they sort of like to see them. There's always the, you know, the, the zoo aspect of it. But they do cross the street. They, you know, they're, uh, there's a danger in terms of cars, which just happens every place. And, uh, and they do do a lot of damage in terms of plant material on campus. So we plant with an eye toward deer-resistant plants and some fences. If you want to plant vegetables, you have to fence them in. I mean, but for ornamental plants, you know, there's a lot of information on which plants will be more or less deer-susceptible. Ornamental grasses generally aren't considered uh, a plant that the deer will eat, but I've noticed that rabbits will eat them when the grasses are very young and small. Um, let's talk about, since we're talking about animal grazing, let's talk about some of this backyard foraging from rabbits. How do you see them as an issue? Well, uh, we have a one very intensive garden here where we have lots of annuals and perennials, and the rabbits get in there and they do 
do a number on some of those young, tender, newly growing annuals. Uh, so that's something we try to get the rabbits out. We encourage the red-tailed hawks, which live around here too, to come down and visit us. One thing I've noticed really unusually about rabbits is they love uh, burning bush, or Euonymus elatus. I don't know what it is, but you'll see this right now. In fact, they'll, if they can get to them, they'll eat the bark of the uh, burning bush, and it's really striking. The burning bush are very tough shrubs, and they'll come back after that, but it just seemed to be their shrub of choice. You've seen a lot of people do things incorrectly in the landscape when they're planting or site locations and things like that, and I know you're a proponent of putting the right plant in the right place and planting it correctly, but let's touch briefly on some of the things that you've seen that are so easily correctable at the first time that you're doing a plant. Remember, there's no mulligans when you're planting a tree. What are some of the problems that you see prevalent in the landscape? Well, I think the first thing that I think is really important is knowing what the site is like and planting the tree correctly for that site. So trees have different preferences in terms of soil and sunlight and water, and to plant a tree or shrub in a place where it really doesn't want to grow there, it's going to set you up for problems for the future. But knowing a little bit about your site can uh, allow you to make the best choices. So matching the plant to the site is a really critical one. In terms of transplanting, uh, that's another area where things can go pretty wrong. I mean, uh, Getting the plant water initially in that first couple of years is really important because the roots have been cut in the process of uh, transplanting, and they need to be reestablished if the plant is going to grow well. So adequate watering that first year, even when it's raining outside, you still need to think about the trees. Their roots are so restricted that they need water more than they would a tree that would be established in the same place for a long time. There's a lot of difficult sites out there that I'm on, and I know one of the most prevalent probably would be dry shade or perhaps wet shade. And I'm partial to a plant that I believe you have growing at your house called yellow archangel. Would you talk about the attributes of this plant? Because in this day and age, everybody wants low maintenance. This is a great uh, great ground cover. It's an evergreen ground cover. Uh, it's a lamiastrum. It's the scientific name, and it does incredibly well in dry shade, which is a very, very tough condition, especially under trees where you have competition with roots and so on. So we started growing it and uh, have encouraged it to grow in places where we can't get much else growing. Uh, So I think it's a really terrific dry shade plant. It is a plant that will creep and crawl, and I think probably it's a good time for us to talk about invasive plants. Now, I don't consider it necessarily invasive because it's so easy to control with a lawnmower if it's growing outside, and I don't believe the seediness is is, is a problem, but let's talk about some invasives and your feelings on them. Well, invasive plants, I mean, I think there are some bad actors, and the definition of invasive, actually a plant that does uh, economic or environmental harm. It's not just one that is good at what it does in terms of moving around and uh, growing. So it has to do environmental or economic harm to be really considered invasive. And there are some plants that do tend to take up space where other plants uh, could grow and they are you know, doing environmental harm. But uh, not every plant that's aggressive or vigorous is considered invasive, especially when it can be controlled so easily. So my, my feeling about that is that invasiveness is a local phenomenon. It's a what happens in your area particularly, and you can't say that the same plant that's invasive in Long Island is going to be even grow here at all. So you need to know local levels and uh, choose your battles because uh, plants that are not necessarily, uh, or vigorous, are not necessarily all bad. So it's a plant that's well adapted to the site and not invasive is, are the appropriate things. Not necessarily only natives, but it could be natives or plants that are not native to the area but do well here 
are, uh, are good plants. And on that topic, let's talk about natives versus naturalized plants. Plants have been here for quite a while. Everybody seems to be concerned about it. It has to be a native plant. It must be native. Let's talk about that. Well, this is a hot topic in horticulture, natives or non-natives and what's better, what's worse. Uh, most of our landscapes are nothing like native. We have, especially in urban areas where there's been housing and roads and history of uh, building and so on, has changed the landscape significantly. So what was native here certain years, many years ago, may not do well here right now. So you need to think about what the site is like now and choose plants that are well adapted to those conditions. And I think that's important to choose plants that are not going to become invasive in terms of doing harm. But there are plenty of plants that are both native and non-native that do very well. Some plants have been were brought over hundreds of years ago. Uh, Queen Anne's lace, for instance. Uh, I mean, that's not a native plant, but are we going to get rid of that? Is that realistic? Uh, is it doing harm? Probably not. So we need to think about what actually, and again, choosing your battles is this important place where, where we really should be thinking about this and where it's not really important. How many plant species do you teach? And then I'm going to ask you, what are your five favorite plants? There's no such thing as five favorite plants. (laughs) Um, We teach over two semesters about 380 woody plants, trees, shrubs, vines, ground covers, woody plants that I teach. And uh, ask me one day and I'll have favorites and another day it would be different. I definitely don't like certain plants, but most plants I like if they're grown well. And you want to push me on this. I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the five plants that you see overused in area landscapes. That's pretty easy. And we see, you know, it's like Groundhog Day all over again. And I know a lot of the big box stores get good prices on these plants, so they push them out. But what are the, what would be the five pet peeves of the plants that you see out there that are just used too much? Ah, Plants that are used too much, well, probably the, the hallmark of that would be Norway maple, which is not only used too much, but it's also invasive. It actually grows by seed dissemination by wind, and uh, and it can actually colonize in forests, so that becomes a problem with our sugar maples and so on. That would be the worst one, and hopefully people are not planting that as much as they used to. In terms of urban areas and trees that are grown too much, I mean, honey locust is a great tree, but it's overused. It is one of the toughest trees, so it has been sort of the go-to, and I don't know what I'm doing, I plant that, and it's probably going to be okay. And I call that the least common denominator tree. And sometimes you need to use those, but there are so many other trees that are great that we need to diversify. So that's two. Uh, uh, Calorie pear is one that I'm seeing overly used. It, It was a great tree in terms of great fall color and great spring bloom. It is now becoming invasive. Uh, some of the hybrids have little tiny little pears that the birds eat and move it around, uh, and that's been overly used. In some cities, uh, you can just see in April or late April this year, you'll see just white, and that will be all calorie pears that uh, have been planted since the 1960s in, in tremendous numbers. Too many. Um, well, there's some plants that, thankfully, we're not planting as much, and silver maple would be another one, which is a, was a very fast-growing, tough tree for wet areas that was planted a lot, and now we know that when these trees get enormous, they, the way they break apart is, is can be quite catastrophic, and they can be very harmful. So we're not planting that anymore, and if we, that shouldn't be planted. Tell me Acer one of yours. Nagundo. Oh, I, that's not, we don't plant that. <laughs> Acer Nagundo, or box elder, is a, is a native, messy tree that breaks apart and, and looks horrible, and definitely don't like it. 
but we don't it's you don't find that in the big box stores I had to bring up H. Nagundo in the spirit of Dr. Robert Maurer. Who, this was the plant that he hated, absolutely abhorred. There used to be a variegated variety of it. Flamingo. Yes, and that was just as lousy in terms of how it did in landscape. Arbor Day uh, is celebrated, and it should be celebrated, uh, every year in New York State last Friday in April, as it will be this year. And Jay Sterling Morton, a native central New Yorker from Adams, New York, actually started the holiday, which has swept across the nation, and now more or less has been swept under the rug at some places because Earth Day has kind of overtaken it. You're doing some exciting things on campus here. Are you not planting for Arbor Day this year again, Nina? We are a tree campus campus, so we uh, adhere to certain the National Arbor Day Foundation tenants that allow us to call ourselves a tree campus, as some cities are tree cities. And we do celebrate Arbor Day every year, and we're doing something special this year. Uh, other than planting trees and, and making a celebration, we are actually going to be uh, putting posters on the trees that... Um, quantify the benefits that the trees provide for the campus, to the environment, uh, for all the trees in the agricultural quad. And I think that will be a good consciousness raising for people to know that trees give back. They don't just take uh, in terms of maintenance, but they actually give back much more than they, they need in the way of maintenance. When we return, more valuable tips on making plants grow in stressful environments with Dr. Nina Bassett, Professor of Horticulture and Director of the Urban Horticulture Institute at Cornell University. Welcome back to Invasion, Landscapes in Crisis. I'm Mike Amy with horticulturalist Jim Celesido, speaking with Dr. Nina Basick, professor of horticulture and director of the Urban Horticulture Institute at Cornell University. Here's Jim Celesido. If folks are looking for more birds in their landscape, let's talk about some of the attributes that trees that we will be planting for Arbor Day should have to encourage more bird nesting or perhaps some flowering or fruit production that might encourage them to hang around. Well, of course, plants create habitat for birds and pollinators that are very important for all our crops. And, um, and so its habitat is a sort of food and shelter, and the plants provide that. Plants, trees, and shrubs provide nesting sites, provide cover, provide fruit for food, provide twigs for making nests. I mean, they, they do all this and uh, are essential for allowing our birds to uh, be here. If you wanted to attract butterflies to your yard, obviously the butterfly bush is one of them, but how would you go about doing something like that? Well, I do a little research and find out which plants are really attract to butterflies. We know the butterfly bush, Budlia, is one that attracts butterflies, but uh, uh, I try to find out a few more so I could get a, a whole butterfly garden. Well, let's talk a little bit about the service berry, Amelanchier, and some of the things you're able to do with the fruit of it, because it's one of my favorite plants, one of the first white flowering plants of springtime, and I just think they're, they should be in every landscape. Well, Amelanchier, or service berry, or shadblow, uh, is a great small tree, and actually there are a number of different species. There are some shrub species. One's called a Saskatoon berry, which is native in Canada, which has great fruit, and we grow that at our house. 
and we make jam out of it. If you don't have uh, acid soil and can't grow blueberries, which we can't, here makes a good substitute, and it's a very good jam. There are some tree forms that are harder to get the fruit from, but they do produce this nice blueberry, very tasty. Mostly the birds get them first. But the shrub forms, the uh, Saskatoon berry, uh, are great shrubby amelanchers, nice white flowers and great fruit, and uh, great for... Uh, Making jam. It might surprise people know, and I know this myself because we've had conversations, you really don't believe in fertilizing plants once they're established in here. What steps do you take to ensure their well-being when you're first planting them? Well, I, I do feel that, uh, you know, if you're a nursery, you might want to push, you know, fast growth in terms of getting the plant to market. In the landscape, we're not look, necessarily looking for excessive growth. Uh, we're looking for adequate growth. And unless you're on a beach and have just sand, uh, most of the soils around here have adequate nutrients to support the plants. Now, of course, it does make a difference that, you know, if you have high pH soil or low pH soil, you need to make decisions accordingly because that determines the availability of some nutrients, and some plants like one of the other types of soils. But having made some good choices, uh, we feel it's more important to get the physical attributes, right, of the soil, the water and air and the density of soil in such a way that roots can really grow well, and that tends to allow us to get the best plant. We were uh, speaking before Jim came back in about your work here in Ithaca and the laboratory that you've created here. Let's talk about that and about how the urban environment is, if not increasingly, becoming a horticulturally rich community but how it could be. I direct the Urban Horticulture Institute here and the Department of Horticulture. It's a program area uh, for 30-odd years, and it would be interesting for people to know that uh, you know, 80% of our population lives in urban areas. This is where we live. Uh, and uh, these urban areas are very horticulturally rich for people who are gardening and want backyards and want their streets and parks to be green and healthful. So there are a lot of challenges that we find in areas that have uh, been worked over by development and human habitation. So the soils have been changed. The, uh, we have buildings. We have sidewalks. We have all kinds of heat load. And we need to choose plants that tolerate these kind of conditions. We also need to change the soil in some cases to make it more uh, uh, applicable for plants to root under sidewalks in places we're not meant to root. And we develop some uh, techniques. One of them is called structural soil, which we can put under pavements and compact it, and yet still trees can grow through it. And we've, chosen, uh, we've done a lot of work with choosing plants that are, and rating plants for their ability to tolerate some of these urban stresses. So I think these are two strategies for dealing with some of the challenges we find in the urban areas. And I think people really appreciate uh, growing things and whether it's their own private property or whether it's in their municipality. Here in Ithaca, you mentioned to me that 95% of the potential places where there ought to be trees, there now are trees. How do you make decisions about what trees ought to be planted in those spaces? Yeah, so I have a great opportunity. I've been the chair of the Shade Tree Committee in Ithaca for 30 years, and uh, I sort of use Ithaca as my downtown lab and trying new things and having the great cooperation with the city forester and the city of Ithaca in doing this. And so, uh, as you mentioned, uh, of all the places that could have street trees, about 90 to 95% are filled with trees. And that's pretty high percentage for most compared to other municipalities. And that's because we actively plant. We also have to take down trees when they've outlived their usefulness or are unsafe. But we plant, well, maybe a couple hundred trees every year. 
We try to choose all the trees that might do really well in urban areas so we can test them over a period of time through observation. We may plant 10 or 20 new trees that are just coming off the, from the nursery trade in new markets, and we'll see uh, how they do in different situations. So a uh, low-tech way of evaluating a lot of different species. So we have over 150 different species in Ithaca, very, very diverse urban forest, we call it. And if we look at all the, all the varieties, we're up near you know, 350 or more. So it's an incredibly diverse place and very rich for looking at all the possibilities that might be out there. How long, in general, does a tree live in an urban environment given the different types of soils and stresses they have? I've heard as few as eight years. Is that accurate? This is a tremendously variable number. The worst case scenario is trees planted in what's called tree pits, which are surrounded by, they're kind of cutouts in the sidewalk surrounded by concrete or asphalt. And they have the worst situation because of reflected heat and a restricted rooting area. And it's, uh, it's variable. There are 8, 15, even 30 years might be uh, the offside for one of those trees in that kind of situation. But if tree roots can escape their pits and get into some other soil, then the tree has a chance of growing for a much longer period of time. It's all about the amount of soil volume that the trees can access determines how long their life will be, other than the fact that a truck might back into them, which we can't control, but it's the more soil the tree has, the longer it will live. And so if you go from the tree pit to the tree lawn, that strip between the curb and the sidewalk, then the trees typically have more soil, and they live longer, and then into a park situation even longer. So uh, it's the amount of soil the tree can access really is the determining factor of how long a tree will live. And finally, Nina, if you have some advice for young budding horticulturalists, people that might be listening to this that say, Jeepers, I might want to have a career in doing some landscaping. What would you recommend that they do? What's the next obvious step? Well, I think that you know, people who love to grow plants or see plants growing, it's a great career. It's a great place. There's many different things you can do as a plant scientist and horticulturist. As long as I've been in this field, I still just get a tremendous kick out of growing plants in my backyard and seeing them grow and trying new things. I think there are great high schools that can give you the basis of some of the science we need for growing plants and then lots of college opportunities for studying this. And so I think it's a great career, just lots of opportunity, and people should get into it. Dr. Nina Basick is professor of horticulture and director of the Urban Horticulture Institute at Cornell University. Back at Cornell Plantations, Botanical Gardens, and Arboretum, Jim Celesido caught up with horticultural and grounds operation manager Jim Mack one more time to check out a variety of sustainable landscape fencing practices employed by plantation staff. The stakes you're using here, I noticed they're bamboo. How many years will you get out of bamboo? And I also noticed the zip ties are reusable. That's very green of you, John. Yes. Uh, well, one of the things we try to do here at uh, Cornell Plantations um, is to be sustainable. Uh, sustainable, uh, as you know, is, uh, has become quite the buzzword uh, recently. For those of us uh, who have been grounds managers for uh, 30 years, as I have uh, uh, we've, we became sustainable before it was even fashionable because it's all about uh, dollars and cents. And uh, when you look on the market, uh, for example, for, uh, for either the fencing material or the kind of stake uh, you're going to hold it up with or the kind of fastening device that you're going to keep everything together with, it, uh, some of it comes down, quite frankly, to dollars and cents. Um, but I, I like to use these... Um, 
fairly heavy-duty bamboo uh, rods here as our stake. You can get them uh, in bundles of 50 or 100, depending on the diameter that you uh, shop. And uh, that's a sustainable resource. I mean, uh, wherever these are harvested, uh, you know, uh, it's a cut-and-come-again crop. Um, and uh, for my money, I think that's a really better way to go than a wood stake, which you'll pay dearly for, number one. And number two, you have uh, f- problems with warpage. You have problems with uh, wind shear, th- th- them not being very resilient and, sna- and prone to snapping off. So we'll get uh, probably, uh, on a, eh, in a good run, maybe as many as three years out of one of these stakes. Certainly we'll get two out of one of these bamboo stakes. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fairly uh, inexpensive if you're, uh, you know, doing the dollar and cent uh, comparison. Uh, we like to use, even though it's a, it's a PVC material, these uh, plastic chain ties. Uh, they come in uh, big rolls of uh, 200 feet or more. And, uh, you know, once you cut them to form, uh, literally, you'll get 10 years out of those things. And uh, some might say, well, yeah, you're using plastic, it's, it's, it's using oil, etc. cetera. But um, with sustainability, you know, you've got to look at the overall picture. And uh, if I were using something that was uh, disposable that I'd have to rebuy every year, that uh, adds up. We're looking at a weeping deciduous plant with four-foot-high fence. Right behind it, we have a taller camisiparis that has a taller fence to it. Looks to be six or seven feet high. Why did you select the taller fence around the evergreen, Jim? That's a good point. Uh, And this is a very good way to illustrate the difference between materials you're using. With a conifer, uh, where you don't really... Uh, want them to be leaning over and sort of uh, nibbling above the fence um, using a taller fence where it's going to impact their uh, nose and they're not going to like that. They're going to back off and move on. Uh, That's what we've really had to do with this particular plant. And uh, in some situations, again, with this garden, where we don't have the luxury of putting that ring out uh, several feet wider than the plant is, uh, we feel we can uh, bring it a little closer to the plant and uh, just have a taller fence to uh, deter them. Jim, I noticed you have some Felco number 2 pruners and some larger Felco bypass pruners here. Once a buck has kind of wrecked a shrub, what's your course of action to make it look presentable? Well, it all depends on what kind of shrub and what its growth habit is. If it's a Sort of a cut and come again, like a, you know, a, one of the bush type uh, dogwoods. Then uh, obviously it's a, it's a pretty easy decision to cut it below the damage, or possibly it might even be a candidate for renovation. Although uh, we have found uh, cutting uh, or you know cutting pl- those kinds of plants right to the ground, you better be ready to put your fence up because the deer have taken note and they're just waiting for those new shoots to come up. Cutting a plant to the ground, I believe that's called coppicing. Are you doing that more and more often once you experience damage? Is that just a a more cost-effective measure as opposed to doing some fine pruning? In some cases, it makes sense. In others, we've found that because, um, you know, we may or may not want to put the the fencing up around it, um, that we try thinning. So it really kind of depends. It's uh, As Phil Seifert was saying earlier, um, you know, there's no exact um, rhyme or reason. You have to kind of uh, try each and experience each. Uh, in some areas where we've uh, thinned back uh, some of the older canes and let the newer ones uh, st- uh, still remain, 
we've found that that tends to kind of protect the newer shoots coming up, or at least deer don't want to get fouled up in a lot of the twiggy stuff sometimes, so they'll maybe move on, get discouraged, eat something else. And other times it makes sense to coppice and renew. We asked Cornell Plantation's gardener, Phil Seifert, to suggest a solution to the deer browsing problem in and around the gardens and arboretum. He answered this way. People don't like creatures with claws and sharp teeth. We don't like seeing coyotes mauling deer in our backyard. How do you know it's not going to attack you? And daggone it, that is a huge component of the problem. If we had a healthy, well-balanced environment with predators, then we would have significantly less of a deer problem around here. And that is an issue that just, it frightens people. You immediately go to an emotional place. How would you like it if you were the one that got attacked by the coyote? And then you're no longer having a rational discussion. You're no longer talking logically. You're speaking emotionally. And and it's easy for your emotions to get carried away. That, I think, is one of the hardest parts about this, that it is a complex issue that doesn't have a simple, clear, do this and you'll be fine kind of answer. The ultimate solution for protecting the Cornell plantations, a miles-long exclosure or barrier fence with self-closing gates, could surround the entire 135-acre cultivated gardens and arboretum soon. Once the fence is built, the cages, repellents, and other techniques that protect fragile and unique plants could go away. Cornell Plantations is an upstate New York treasure. Gardener Micha Stragapiti puts it this way. I am uh, intensely fascinated and charmed by the notion of the oasis, a museum as a repository of uh, knowledge and beauty. And these two things together, uh, I think, converge beautifully in, in uh, plantations. I am just uh, in awe of the surrounding nature. Uh, the Finger Lakes area is just a beautiful, beautiful environment. I love that the water is present everywhere. I love the lakes. I love swimming in them. I love the wine growing in the region. But the plantations, to me, is just a perfect lens to look through and see the beauty that's here. To learn more about the topics discussed in this program, visit wrvo.org landscape. Thank you for listening. For Jim Celesito, I'm Mike Amy. This program was produced by WRVO Public Media.